You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Greetings, Asbury. Welcome to our last chapel of the semester. And since it is the last chapel of our semester, I thought I would do it from a spaceship. Um, Actually, maybe not. I think this is probably better. Well, again, welcome to our last chapel of the semester. Before I get into the message for today, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you students. I want to thank the entire Asbury community for the incredible flexibility, the collegiality, and the resilience that you have demonstrated over the last couple of months. These are extraordinary times. These are very unique circumstances. And this is a season unlike any other you and I have had in our lifetimes, but it really has brought out the best in so many of you. And that's been a blessing for me to see. So thank you. I want to open up in scripture uh, from Matthew chapter 20. I'm reading from the NRSV and I'm reading a familiar passage. So Jesus is traveling with his disciples and this is verse 17. While Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves and said to them on the way, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised. Verse 20, Then... The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard it, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called them, called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what's happening here? Jesus stops his disciples and makes this really important declaration to them of what is about to happen as they travel to Jerusalem, of what what is about to be fulfilled. And then immediately after, we get this request uh, that there would uh, be this elevation of the sons of Zebedee, that James and John would sit at the left and the right of Jesus's uh, kingly throne. And of course, others get mad about this, but Jesus says, "You, you don't get it. My kingdom is the upside-down kingdom. Uh, The first will be last. The greatest will be a servant of all, because I have come to serve others. In 2005 
And after being diagnosed with the pancreatic cancer that would eventually take his life, Steve Jobs, the famous founder of Apple, regaled the graduating class from Stanford with the following words. He says, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and your intuition. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of great things that were given in Steve Jobs' speech that day. And moreover, we recognize him as a genius and all the contributions that he has made to our technology and entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, making a video based upon his genius right now. But it is worth pointing out that Jobs is giving advice that's as old as time itself. He's saying, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Now, interestingly, I want to point out that a similar kind of logic was actually used by the serpent in the garden. This is from Genesis chapter 3. The serpent says, did God say? Dangerous words right there. Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. You will determine right and wrong as you see fit. The lie that deceived Adam and Eve, the lie that, that captured the imagination of James and John and their mother, the lie that reverberates uh, with predictable regularity in commencement speeches and other similar venues each and every year, really is our illusion today. And here it is. The good, the right, and the true aren't out there to be discovered and sought and apprehended. They're inside of me. I am the arbiter of right and wrong. It is me, not others, who can best evaluate the choices that will maximize satisfaction. So, if the self is the problem and not the solution, uh, as the world tells us, what then are we to do? Unfortunately, no adequate answer is likely to be found in a lot of our contemporary spheres of politics and education, uh, culture, uh, but we can turn to the Bible and to the faith tradition for an answer. Again, Christ in Matthew 20, 25, let last shall be first, least shall be greatest of all. In his book, Your God is Too Safe, the author Mark Buchanan tells this really interesting story of marital counseling he was given to a couple. The couple wanted to write their own vows, which is not unusual. And he met with them and he said, your vows are really fantastic. Uh, there's only one change that I would advise you to make. In your vows, you say, I promise to be true to myself. Here's the exchange that Buchanan said he had with this couple. He said, I'm pretty sure you don't want that in the vow. I'm pretty sure we do, the couple said. Buchanan said this, maybe you're different from me. There's a part of me, I'm glad to say, that is joy-filled and generous and trusting and trustworthy. 
But then there's this other part of me, maybe the larger part sometimes, that's slothful and lustful and greedy and miserly and apathetic. Then Buchanan said, which part should I be true to? He goes on to write this, It occurred to me that to, that to take traditional marriage vows is to pledge, in essence, that I won't be true to myself, but rather that I will be true to another. I will be true to God. But in order to do that, he says, I will often have to deny myself deny my impulse to run, deny my impulse to retaliate, to sulk, to self-indulge, to self-destruct. Buchanan's insight really stands in stark contrast to the wider belief that people are, at their core, really, really good. Some people have this belief that over the course of our life, we have a variety of inputs that are good and a variety of inputs that are bad, and it kind of shuffles out at the end with hopefully the good outweighing the bad. Some believe that religion is a key to tip the scales in the good direction. But others believe the exact opposite. You may be familiar with the new atheists like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, who actually say, no, we start good, but it's religion and its beliefs that actually make us bad. But the Christian tradition has a much, much different narrative. We can go all the way back to Augustine, but I think this is said very well in the person of Luther. We oftentimes talk about sin as an action, or we've heard that sin is missing the mark. Uh, if you miss the bullseye, it's a sin. But Luther says it is core in curvatus adse. It is the heart curved in on itself. Luther is saying sin is not simply an action. Rather, actions are symptomatic of a disposition, a bent towards the self. Many are familiar with the story where the popular newspaper sent out uh, an open call, an open inquiry to thinkers saying, what is wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton said, dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. In other words, historical Christianity has long recognized the self as the problem and not the solution to achieving human excellence. It was the British journalist Malcolm Muggridge who described man's depravity as, quote, the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. And I think empirical is the right description here. Inside or outside the faith, most people observe, most people witness, most people experience some kind of an inclination or an incapacity for right living. T.S. Eliot famously wrote that between the idea and the reality falls the shadow. In other words, there is a gap between our intention and our performance. And where does that gap come from? And what is the nature of that gap? I shared before when I was a teenager, I wasn't a terribly reflective one. Uh, but I remember being in the car, there was a popular song that was on called Good Intentions. It was by a band I enjoyed at the time, secular band. The opening lyrics go like this. It's hard to rely on my good intentions when my head's full of things I can't mention. It seems I usually get things right, but I can't understand what I did last night. 
I remember sitting in the car listening to that and I thought, that's me. That's my life. I'm a good guy and I have good intentions, but there are things in my head I can't mention and I can't understand why I did what I did yesterday or last week or why I want to do, oh wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, right? It's a phrase, it's an utterance that's familiar to us. As I would come to learn, I was experiencing what people across time and cultures have long recognized and lamented in the human experience. Outside the Lord, I am not good. This is what I was coming to grips with. I am not good. I am not the answer. I am not the solution. I cannot pull myself up by my own moral bootstraps. As the late author and thinker, Pastor A.W. Tozer said, the wind blows toward hell. That is, we have an inclination to serve ourselves. And this may not sound too bad on the surface, but it is literally our bane uh, of of existence, our desire to do good, uh, to be good. A heart curved in on itself is a heart that desires autonomy, total freedom, not unto others, but from others. It is lustful, it is conniving, it is caustic. And here's the thing, in an insidiously ironic twist, this kind of freedom doesn't liberate. It actually places me in far greater bondage. John Wesley understood this. He called it independency. In other words, the desire for autonomy that is masked as the desire for liberty. Independency is not freedom unto God. It's freedom from God and freedom from others. Total, to, being totally unconstrained. The problem is we always give ourselves to something. Augustine understood this. He says, love is a kind of motion and every motion is towards something. We all worship. We all ascribe value. We all commit ourselves to something. We bond ourselves to something. The question is, what is it? There is no such thing as total freedom. This is why I love Romans 6.22. It says, Now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question is not freedom. The question is, what will we give ourselves to? And in that connection, do we find freedom? Understood in these terms, staying true to myself is most certainly a recipe for destruction. This is why Mark Twain said, some of the worst advice one man can give to another is to be himself. I think Luther had it right. During the Eichmann trial, Adolf Eichmann, who was responsible for the deaths of millions of Jews in concentration camps. Uh, this was uh, attended by a gentleman named Yihal Dinir. And Dinir had been in one of those concentration camps. And the story is told, and there's even a video showing this, that when Eichmann entered uh, the, the, the auditorium, uh, the trial, and Dinir saw him, he passed out. Many years later, Mike Wallace was interviewing uh, Denner and said, why did you pass out? 
Was it because you were so overwhelmed, you were so flooded with these terrible memories of this man and all the atrocities he had committed? And Denier said, no. He walked in and I saw he was a man like me. And if those capacities for evil were in him, those same capacities are in me. And it was such an overwhelming thought, I passed out. I want to end with an encouragement to you. That Romans 6.22, the slaves to being set free from sin and becoming slaves to God, this is not a bondage. This is actually our freedom. This is our liberation. This is the place where our desires do not come back void. If a heart curved inward is the essence of sin, otherness, the love of God, the love of neighbor, the service we offer unto others, this is our full life, our abundant life. And I hope that you are finding otherness in this time, connection with God, connection with others, and finding fullness in that. May our actions and may our desires serve to make us fit for this very upside-down kingdom that Jesus describes in these days. Blessings to you all. Let me end where I began with thanks. I so love and appreciate you. I appreciate the flexibility, again, the resilience that you have shown, and the beautiful creativity, connections with one another, um, the, the overtures towards one another to help and to serve and assist. And I am so excited for us to be back together, face-to-face, -to -face, proximate, so we can be on this journey towards an upside-down kingdom together. All of God's best to you.